Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Quote Virus Podcast, the Catholic podcast that helps to begin with the end in mind. My name is Taylor Geiger, and that's Father Mark. Hey Father Mark. That's my name. That's my name. You call it by my name. Sir. <laughs> that's true. We're sticking with the whole military theme. Yeah, here. we like, were talking yeah, about yeah. this prior to we recording, were. so. We were, we were, but you know, it's, it's okay. It's all, do you have any good. military in your family? I background? do. I do. Yep, mm-hmm. I do. Uh, I'm trying to think of like grandparents I, I know my my maternal grandmother wilbur young he was wilbur not maybe mm. come across too often he died when i was like like i was like a tiny little baby so I, mm-hmm. I don't have any memories of him um he served in world war ii i know that um he actually by like by like his trade was an artist that, that, that's what he did he loved he loved art hmm. and uh but he worked for a <laughs> is that what i'm sorry <laughs> Monday. <laughs> I know he worked for. Uh, um, I, I, I wish I knew the company he worked for. But what he did was when uh, when they were like making vacuum cleaners or like you know uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of more appliances. Like when they needed to make the manuals, all the little drawings were hand drawn back then, and that's mm-hmm. what my grandpa did. Like he he would draw wow. like, like the pieces of like these things and make the manuals for it. It's pretty cool. Hmm. But in World War II, um, he actually I think he worked with drawing maps. So I think that that was hmm. kind of one of his roles. And I my grandma had told me story it was actually pretty cool she uh she went because i think they were i don't know i should know i'm not sure if they were married or if they were just like dating when he came back they got married i'm not totally certain on that mm-hmm. but he was under a lot of letters you know they like would correspond back and forth and he's only allowed to kind of like because the, the military would screen the letters you know and they kind of black out things that weren't supposed to you know be putting in the letters like where they were my grandma was kind of able to piece it together a little bit of kind of like where he was and kind of like made like a little map after like where he all was and and um, apparently, um, because a lot of times he'd work at night, it, he had to work a lot of times like underground a little bit so he could like do stuff. And one time he found himself behind enemy lines because like he was working underground and his whole like his whole like battalion had left without him, <laughs> and he just had to like, kind of find his way back to like like back to his unit. <laughs> That's terrifying. Yeah, like, <laughs> so because he's working, like he had to use all these lights and he's trying to make maps, and then yeah. you know, he's like by himself. <laughs> he had to find his way back, and he found his way back apparently just fine. Wasn't that big well, of a deal? It, I mean, it could have been worse. Skill, right? Right? Yeah, I mean, if the map could've drawer could've can <laughs> find his way back, that'd, hey guys, are, that'd be pretty sad. We lost someone. Who? Our map guy. <laughs> does he have a map? You he gotta does. be kidding me. <laughs> he does. <laughs> The irony, the irony. <laughs> but then I also have, I also have two brothers who were in the Marine Corps. Mm. So um, one's still in, and the other one had left after I think four years, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, so yeah, so they're, but they had some military in their, in their mm-hmm. family as well. Cool. I was hoping to join the Marines when I was in high school. That was my goal. What happened? I felt the Lord calling me to serve in the church in a different way. So mm. yeah, it was. Uh, I was all but signed up. I would go every Wednesday. I went to the workouts with all the Marines like that. And I usually, I usually. Where was this? Felt sick in Manitowoc. Cause oh. they, they, they had a Marine Corps recruiter in Manitowoc right by the Starbucks. They were in that area. There's a Marine Corps recruiter and an Army recruiter right there. So okay. every Wednesday, we'd, we'd gather. There's a group of guys who were interested in joining the Marine Corps. We'd gather every Wednesday and work out together and do some grappling and that kind of stuff. And then uh, I went on a, on a trip with uh, my youth minister, Joel, who I've mentioned a couple times in the podcast. Hey, Joel. I know you don't listen, but hey. <laughs> and, uh, and on the trip, I felt kind of like this pull. I'm like, I, I think I want to serve in the church in some capacity. And so he's like, I think you should do that. And so I told the guys I wasn't going to do it anymore. So I didn't. What did they say to you? They weren't happy. Mm. <laughs> they call you a quitter? Uh, well, all, all in not so many words, but yeah. You're I mean, a <laughs> <laughs> You're a worthless. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Do you have any military in your family? Um, a great uncle was in World War Two. Oh yeah, Un- I guess great uncle Ben. Yeah, yep, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, those 
guys truly were the greatest generation. In oh Texas. yeah, I can. I mean, I was able, I was blessed to go actually visit the beaches of Normandy mm. and uh, to see the cemetery. It's just, it's just, it's just overwhelming to think like what happened there um, really changed history for you know in, in the direction we find ourselves. Oh, yeah. You know, if that if that goes differently, you know, who, who knows what what our world looks like, you right. know. And then obviously you hear all these stories, these, you know, young guys, just like, man, the courage. And I mean, I'm sure they were terrified and I'm sure they prayed a ton, um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's just, it, it's just, yeah, I got a lot of, a lot of respect for, for military, their families and the, what they do. Um, I'm, you know, it's kind of the cliche, right? But freedom isn't free type right. of thing. No, yeah. it, I'm, you know, and we've been really, I guess we am saying collectively as the Diocese of sure. Green Bay have been generous in particular because of Bishop. That we've given priests oh, yeah. to serve as chaplains to our military. Yeah. So, um, actually, Father Matt Fawcett, who was ordained back in 2019, um, is going to go pretty soon, actually, yep. to do five years as an army chaplain. Because the military has their own archdiocese, right? They do. So, yep. it's the archdiocese, uh, either four or of, I think it's four military services. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. It's kind of funny because... Um, um, the Archdiocese in Milwaukee. I think their website is archmill.org. Oh. And then the military is Mill Arch. <laughs> Something like that. I, I, quite, I don't quite get it right. Or I get it mixed up. But I think it's right. I think it's Archmill is Milwaukee. I'm looking for Mich- the military and, and yeah. I end up in Milwaukee. I'm in Milwaukee. Classic. So, um, but no, they have a bishop and every, an archbishop. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an archdiocese. So um, If you're a priest for the archdiocese of the military, do you get uh, do you get camel clerics? Um. I don't know if that's stand, a part of standard. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is this is an important. Well, question. here's the thing, though, because <laughs> I guess I'm not sure how that works. Because I don't know if they actually become a priest for the archdiocese of the military services. Because Father Matt will like, always be not, a like, priest. You're not like incarnated. No, there you're just kind of on this. loan, I believe. <laughs> so that's a uh, good Father Girardi question. If you ever have is, him back, uh, canonically speaking, but I mean, they never incarnate with them. Mm. So I'm sure the archbishop does, because I mean, you have to well, be right. Yeah, yeah, but so. Yeah. Do you think Do you think Father Girardi would take my question seriously if I asked him if they get if they get uh, camouflage clericals? Do you think he'd take me seriously, or do you think he would just laugh at me? Um, I, I think <laughs> he, I think he'd laugh. It's <laughs> yeah. a serious question. I'm, I really I, do. Want you can say it as seriously <laughs> as you as you were able, but I, I do, still believe I do think that they actually have stoles that are like camouflage. I'm pretty sure I've seen a picture Not, of one I guess, of those yeah. before. So yeah. like that, I mean, I, I suppose is kind of like it you know what I mean? mm-hmm. but I, I mean i want to see a priest in full clerics but it's camo that'd be that's just that's just cool but what's the white tab gonna be <laughs> that's a great question so white that's a great question that would seem like that would make you a pretty easy, easy target if you have a big white tab on your you on know your neck. you know <laughs> so maybe i gotta rethink this maybe what i'll do is uh i'll, I'll hire an artist to mock up do some mock-ups of possible clerics of the military and then i'll i'll start a twitter campaign and I'll make sure it gets in the right hands, and uh, I'll be sure to get Father Girardi's approval on it. And it's a good thing. Sign it. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yep. This is one of the best that Eddie's have had in a very long time. So yes. I appreciate Just it. a factory of good ideas. <laughs> Just doling them out. I can't help but feel as if you're being a little sarcastic. You know, it's, it's, Perhaps. It's disheartening to hear your boss say, you're a factory of good ideas. <laughs> Oh. Anyway, so anyway. so the the topic of today's podcast is we're talking about the Eucharist. Um, the uh, John Paul II back in oh I should have looked up when when he wrote this letter. Do you know? 
Off the top it of your was head? Toward, not off the top of my head, but it was it towards was, the end of his pontificate. Was, was it before the, the new millennium or was it after? I think I it might it have been after. after. I think he references mm-hmm. it in the, in the text mm-hmm. here. So mm-hmm. um, after the new millennium, so somewhere after 2000, <laughs> and before the end of his pontificate, um, he wrote an encyclical called Ecclesia de Eucharistia, um, which basically, in the title of it, it says, the church draws her life from the Eucharist. It's the, it's the church and the Eucharist. Ecclesia is the Greek for, for church. Um, and so Eucharistia, I'm sure people can kind of piece that one together, um, as the Eucharist. And so he wrote this document on the Eucharist and the church's relationship to the Eucharist. Um, and a couple of reasons why I want to cover this. 2003 is when he wrote this document. Thank you very much, Father Mark. Appreciate well, that. I like, I like hand signed it so you didn't have to see. I like fact check this. Just, there it is. There's no curtain as you've been listening for a year. I don't think anyone year. thought There's that no, my- I no curtain. I don't think anyone thought my brain just randomly was like, that's the date. I mean, no, no it certainly not. I'm, I'm not a smart man. <laughs> so anyway, but, but it was towards the end of us pontificating. That is we pretty close. That that right. That's pretty close. So um, anyway, what's happening now in our church is that we're, we're entering into a time of what we're calling the Eucharistic revival. Um, I, I don't know exactly all of the motivations behind it. I suspect a big part of it is because there was, I think it was a, a Pew study. I'm pretty sure it was. A couple was, of years yeah, ago. Yeah, many years ago now. Not many, but I mean... Well, it seems like many, I guess, in relative terms. So, like, what, four years ago, three years ago, maybe? Maybe three. Three years ago, that came out that said that it was something like like 60% of Catholics... I thought it was higher. I thought it was 70. 70% of Catholics didn't believe or understand the church's teaching on the Eucharist. That what they were saying was that it was a symbol of Christ's body and blood, not his transubstantiated body and blood mm-hmm. and so when that came out obviously there were a lot of catholic alarm bells <laughs> going off i mean like i think most parishes apostolates dioceses all of a sudden they heard this and they're like wait wait what what <laughs> like we're talking about a a, a core understanding of not a, of, of our of our catholic faith is is by the majority of people misunderstood right i mean and, and i think that the the most charitable way to under to, to put this is that people simply don't understand the church's teaching on this um but also that they they, they very well made us be not well formed and that no one really sat them down and, and taught them the church teaching on this and so um what we wanted to do was um because you actually in the summers you do a thing with seminarians is that we do with, with, with our, our seminarians with our our seminarians that are in theology so they're within the last theology. four years okay. um which we say theology but now there's even shift in language yeah, and the configuration right. stage ah. those in the configuration <laughs> stage um yeah every summer we do a summer theological read. Um, one, it's just, it's a good we touch base. So for I mean, it's kind of the beauty of Zoom and everything that yep. kind of came from the pandemic. Because this past year, we had, uh, or I guess a couple months ago, we had one of our seminaries in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm. We had one in Spain, in Europe, and <laughs> another one in Newton, Wisconsin. So um, <laughs> another one in Appleton, actually. So there were four. So. But Zoom allowed us to gather. So what we do is we essentially use it as a touching base to see what's going on right. uh, so I can stay connected to them. But then we also read through um, a papal document. So mm. this kind of actually goes back to when I was in seminary. My formator was really, he, he loved reading the popes and these different documents that they produce. Um, I remember once I was asking 
I'm like, oh, I wanted to, you know, grow my devotion to the Sacred Heart. You know, is there a good book that you recommend? You know, recommend? He's like, oh yeah, Hari Hariatis Aquas, yeah, Pius the Twelfth. I'm like, wait, wait what? What? <laughs> like what? <laughs> so, um, I I read that. Yeah, I'm sure the first word is hard. It's it's yep. yeah, Hariatis Aquas. But anyway, yeah. um. But he says he, he kind of instilled that, like, yeah, to be able to read the popes, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And these a lot of these documents aren't terribly long. So we would read about 10 pages every week and essentially get through the document. So anyway, but yeah, this, you know, we've read, read Redemptoris Custos because that was the year of St. Joseph. Mm. And then last year we read Dies Domini, which is Day of the Lord, which was on the importance of the Mass. And that was kind of, we were as we're coming out of the pandemic, the importance of the celebration and the faithful's attendance at Holy Mass. Yeah, and this one because you reckon, you know, the need to know the, the beauty that is the Eucharist we did. Yeah. Yeah. Ecclesia de Eucharistia. It All is, John Paul II. <clears throat> yeah. He wrote a lot. He wrote a lot. <laughs> he was, but he was around <laughs> he a lot. Really. He did. I mean, he, so it's not yeah, like. He's around for a long time. So I mean, I've kind of like always chosen not purposely, but it's just like. He's just written a lot. And, I had a lot of very prof- accessible. I had a lot of professors working uh, that I worked with for my master's degree who were very much convinced that he'll someday be, be named a doctor of the church based oh, on yeah. how much he wrote oh, and yeah. like how how yeah. eloquent it all was written. But I do think that um, I mean, just I guess in kind of an introduction to getting into this a little bit is that it is important for Catholics to uh, if they feel comfortable reading the documents of the popes. I mean, sometimes you come across them and they are sometimes a little bit more heady, and sometimes the popes mm-hmm. are. It, it, I think it, a lot of times it depends on on the pope. <laughs> I mean, like mm-hmm. if you read Pope Benedict, he was a he was an intellectual scholar just mm-hmm. by trade. Mm-hmm. So like that that comes through in his writing. He's a brilliant man. John Paul II also very much an intellectual scholar, but also very much a he also had a, a way of teaching. He was very good at, at teaching those things. So mm-hmm. he was very good at maybe not using some of the deeper theological language all the time and making sure he could make it accessible in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, so part of the my role with with the job I'm in right now is that when I I teach the Kairos guys which obviously you all know, but people don't <laughs> don't know sometimes. I teach the Kairos guys part one and three of the catechism, and when we're going through the catechism of the Catholic Church, which if you're a listener and you haven't ever opened one, you should open up a catechism. It's incredible. It's a wealth of knowledge. Or go online. Or go online, absolutely. There's always footnotes, and, and like when based on what, what they're quoting, what they're, the ideas they're pulling from, and they're always pulling from tons and tons of papal documents of like mm-hmm. just like because that, that there's, there's there's this wealth of knowledge this ocean of knowledge that's been created by by our by our popes throughout the centuries and and the church still leans into those ideas and tries to pull those ideas to help explain difficult teachings of the church um, or, or even just not just difficult but sometimes hard to understand teachings and so they're constantly referencing these documents and I, I think that it's so important for people to read those things and also it's also important to read the the, the, the current Popes. I mean, obviously, right now we're, we have the pontificate of Pope Francis. He won't be Pope forever because <laughs> he, at some point, will will pass away. And so the next Pope will come in and he will write documents because they always do. And it's a good way. It's a good way to get a glimpse into how they see the world and what it is they're trying to accomplish and how they want to form the church and how they feel the Holy Spirit's moving them to form the church. And so it's an important way for all of us to continue to read these things because we get a glimpse not only into the mind of the Pope and the things that he sees coming down the pipeline and the difficulties that he's perceiving and how he wants to teach and form people. And so it's a, it's a great way to dive into the, into the intellectual tradition of our church if you're looking kind of a way to do that. The Vatican website, vatican.va, um, has all of the documents of, I think, every pope. I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, like... Maybe. I mean, definitely yeah. within the last hundred years. Yeah, I mean, easily hundred yep, years. Yeah, yep, they've so, got all those. Yeah, tons and tons of them on there. So anyway, in English, make, yeah, in, in, English. in multiple languages actually yep. too. I mean, if yep, Spanish or yeah, whatever. If you want to read it in Deutsch, 
It's there if, too. If, if you read Deutsch, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Ich spreche ein bisschen Deutsch, but not much. Just, yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so good. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, the document we're covering today is Ecclesia de Eucharistia. Um, it's, again, on the Eucharist and its relationship to the church. And so, um, I mean, Father Mark, just to kind of begin with, why did you choose this particular document to do the Summer Theology Series? And then, like, where did you start off with the guys when you're like, all right, let's jump into this? Obviously, mm-hmm. you went through it, I'm guessing, paragraph by paragraph, essentially, but we're not doing that here. But anyway, yeah, take us through it. No, I mean, I guess I kind of mentioned it because I thought you did, but maybe you didn't. But we find ourselves, uh, the USCCB, uh, just recently, actually, on Corpus Christi, back in June, yeah. decided to institute uh, three years, uh, the National Eucharistic Revival. So going back to this unfortunate reality that a lot of Catholics don't fully understand what the Eucharist is, and then, you know, not only to understand what the Eucharist is, but then to love the Eucharist, uh, to really make that the focus. I mean, this is this great gift that's been given to us. I mean, from Jesus himself. I mean, this is my body, this is my blood. We have the opportunity to hear that, to receive him every single day in daily Mass, if you're able to attend, which is, and there's a ton of live streams to listen to Mass, relevant radio, all these different, but anyway, um, to really kind of focus on this great gift, um, mm. because I don't, this might be my own thought on this, but you know, they say, <laughs> this might have been Fulton Sheen, I believe, that you know the largest you know Christian denomination is the Catholic Church, and the second largest is you know former Catholics, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because they, they, they don't fully understand. And, right. you know, there's things that happen. Don't get me wrong. Uh, bad things that have happened. But I just, I really believe if 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 we all really knew the gift of the Eucharist, you know, could we ever really leave mm. um, the church? As much as it's in its humanity and in the sins of people within that church, don't get me wrong. I mean, that's a reality. We we are sinners. Yep. But if we really knew what the Eucharist was, I don't know if we could ever walk away. And I know I couldn't. I mean, I suppose you'd say that because you're a priest, right? But it's like... <laughs> But I just I, I feel like that's such you a, have it's to such a truth. It's such a truth, <laughs> yeah. you know. So that's why I wanted to focus on this because if we are going to be focusing on this as as a country over the next three years, you know, like I said, there, there's a lot of documents on the Eucharist. Um, Benedict wrote one, Sacramentum Caritatis, mm. um, and maybe we'll do that next year because we'll still be within that. But anyway, that's why I wanted to focus on this, you know. And obviously, for seminarians, those studying to be priests, I mean, this is the bread and butter of what we're called to do. Um, most priests I know celebrate Mass every single day. Sometimes, oftentimes, multiple times a day. I've, yep. I've, I've celebrated Mass once. I've got one more later today already. <laughs> Mondays, I'm a hot commodity because most priests take uh, <laughs> Monday off, so I don't. So, um, <laughs> what? So now we know why you don't take Mondays off. You're like, oh, Mondays. Like, here I am. People love me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wanted. I'm needed. I'm loved. The people love me. Uh, so I do think, though, that one of the things you said just now that I, I was getting as a theme as I was, as I was going through the text again here was um, the theme of gift. And that, that, that mm-hmm. does come through very loud and clear in John mm-hmm. Paul's writing on this. And I, I just think it's so terribly important to maybe just kind of begin there. Because I think the the entire spiritual life sometimes can be taken for granted. And a lot of times when we when we look at the spiritual life and we look at our life and we look at everything, when we forget that everything is a gift from the Lord to us, we 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 sometimes start to lean too much into our own understanding. We take things for granted. Um, and by taking things for granted, we don't actually come to appreciate those things and we don't we're not properly disposed then receiving the gifts the Lord wants to continually to give us because if we just expect to get the gift, we just expect this gift. When I think so many spiritual writers are always trying to kind of begin there of like that this is a gift, that the grace the Lord gives to you is a gift 
given to you, unmerited gift. He just gives it to you. Mm-hmm. And the, the Eucharist, and so John Paul writes in here, um, near paragraph 11, it's kind of right after that, he says, The church has received the Eucharist from Christ her Lord, not as one gift, however precious among so many others, but as the gift par excellence. For it is the gift of himself, of his person, and his sacred humanity, as well as the gift of his saving work. So, like, I mean, he's, he's trying to acknowledge that, like, the Eucharist is not something that we deserve to have. It's not something that we've earned. He gives this to us in order to be close to us here and now and every single day until he comes again at the end of time, which, again, is a theme throughout the text, which we maybe will touch on a little bit later here. But I think that's a good place to begin, that the Eucharist is, is a gift, and is a gift given to us by the Lord, um, and then it comes through also other gifts. It comes to us through the gift of the church, and it also comes to us through the gift then of, of the bishops, and then of the priests who say yes to being a priest, then who, who then can confect the Eucharist. So it's like, mm-hmm. this, like this kind of chain of, of gifts given to us. And I don't know, and I'll, I'll speak for myself because that's the only thing I can do, I don't know if every Sunday I really take the time to appreciate that gift, if I really take time to appreciate the fact that I try to appreciate that it, the Lord is close to me in the Eucharist, he's present in the Eucharist, he really is present in the Eucharist, I don't know if I always take the time to appreciate the kind of the, like the, the, the economy of the gift, basically, this whole ecological system of this gift that allows me presently in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, to receive the Lord, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Like, I don't know if I, if I take time to really truly appreciate that. And if I did, it'd probably change my spiritual life. It would probably change how I approach not only the Eucharist, but also the priesthood and the church in general. So I don't know, this is a thought began. Can be no, I mean, be, yeah, it's a beautiful thing to recognize because, you know, we're certainly human. I think we take things for granted, but we do have to pause to recognize while the gift is still there because, you know, unfortunately it seems sometimes that people don't appreciate gifts until they're not there anymore. Yep. And it's just like, oh man, you know, oh, and that's, yeah. you know, this is actually something that comes up in this document um, as well. Just the, pain that can come from parishes and, 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 you know, congregations that don't have a regular priest to offer the Eucharist, yep. um, you know, it's painful. I mean, it's painful. And in my own position, as I'm, I'm not assigned to a parish, I do help out every weekend. You know, you go different places and your heart just is moved because, I mean, I guess maybe similar to what Jesus, you know, he talked about sometimes seeing the crowds are like sheep without a shepherd. And sometimes I get that sense that, you know, these different places, you know, if they don't have a regular priest and you can say, well, they, yeah, they are sheep without a shepherd. Or if they do, but that shepherd is shared amongst other flocks of sheep, you yeah. know, they can be like, man, like, you know, there's not enough time, you know, mm-hmm. to, to really kind of devote the time and, and the attention needed to each individual flock. So, um, you know, I just, I never wanted to come to that point, no. which is why obviously our role is to encourage about vocations, but also to give the status of where we stand because uh, it's a gift, and but it can't be taken for granted because it might not be there if we don't have enough priests and, and parishes have to close. I'm not trying to be a harbinger of doom, but this is a reality type of thing. So we need to recognize the gift, as you said, but also to pray in particular for those religious vocations, but in particular the priesthood because yeah. it's so fun. As you talked about, you know, being able to receive it in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, not only that, but you get, you have multiple options oh, yeah. to receive it in Manitowoc, Lots. Wisconsin. Yeah. You know, unless the thing, unless it changed, is there six weekend masses? I think so. Because there's, yeah, there's two, four two, o'clock. Two at each no, there, there's, there's well, you know, there was, seven. There's more than that, yeah. Because there's counting Saturday. Yeah, yeah. There's two four o'clocks, and there's two at each site. I think on on Sundays. That's two four six, eight. 
There'd be eight masses, weekend masses? I think there's there's five Sunday morning. Okay. And unless unless it's changed. Yeah, anyway, we don't have to, yeah, anyway, yeah. anyway, we're getting we're getting in the weeds. We're getting in the weeds. It's a lot. But the, but all those options are there and there's right. there's no guarantee that those will always be there. Yep. Because if you don't have priests, that's kind of what it is. Yep. So um I, I love that John and this was back in two thousand three. So a little bit of context. I mean, this was in the wake of kind of the first big, you know, revelation of the sexual abuse and yeah, the cover up. So, yeah, sure. um, it's kind of important to keep that context in mind as well. Um, but to know the hurt, it's just like, man, you know, your heart's my, at least it's a grace, but when I see some of these, like my heart's going to be like, I'll, I'll be your priest. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'll tell Bishop. No, <laughs> but, um, but it, this is how the Lord set it up. So yep. anyway. Yeah. And I think maybe even before we kind of get into this, obviously even more deeper, I know we keep saying that we'll, we'll keep on going. In this. There's a lot to cover in this document. Um, it might be good for us just to kind of just begin with what is the church's teaching on the Eucharist? And so would you mind kind of like walking us through in, in, in a, in the, in the elevator pitch basically of what is the church's yeah. teaching on the Eucharist? Yeah. So, the Eucharist is one of the seven sacraments, and as we've always been taught, you know, these sacraments were these instituted by Jesus, um, these external signs and symbols to bring us grace. Um, that That's what a sacrament is. So all of them were instituted by Jesus. So we go back to Holy Thursday, the Last Supper. Yep. Um, not the Last Dinner, but the Last Supper. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> as a quick side note, your father Mark and I often disagree on what to call the last meal of the day, whether it's dinner or supper. He's very much in the camp of supper, and he likes to it's say, biblical. Jesus did it's not biblical. celebrate the last dinner, Taylor. <laughs> it's biblical. Okay, anyway. keep going. Um, at the last supper. At the last supper that he gave us before his passion, uh, he left us, yes, a science symbol, but the reality truly substantially him, he left us this gift to remain with us always. Mm. And as we say, to be reminded to do this in memory of him. So, you know, that's where it was instituted. But even the understanding of the Eucharist goes back to John 6. It's a very you know, popular chapter for Catholics because it's really when Jesus is talking about what it truly is. Not just some sign, not just some symbol, but, but truly him. Right. Then unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we do not have life within him. And, you know, the people, this is hard to hear. It's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> it, it is hard to hear, but it is our teaching that we truly believe that we receive Jesus's body and blood, obviously not some part of his leg or some part of his foot or something like that, but his substantial presence, yep. him in the Eucharist, that he makes himself presence under the appearance of bread and wine, no longer bread and wine after the consecration. These signs remain that it looks like it tastes like it, but it's changed in its substance is kind of theological, but, um, but it truly is him, which is why we genuflect when we come into church, which is why we have adoration, which yep. is why we burn a sanctuary lamp to show that, his presence is there. So that's what the Eucharist is. I mean, is there a sign and symbol? Yes, because we're, in a sense, representing what was done at the Last yes. Supper. So there is the element, but it's so much more than that, which is what that was hard to hear in that survey that came out that we don't don't truly know what that is. So that's the gift. And because it was instituted at the Last Supper, Jesus with his 12 apostles, that gift has been entrusted to the apostles, the first bishops, that have extended on to priests, so on yeah. and so forth. So that's why... We have that through the priesthood, um, because that's when it was instituted that night as well. Those two, it's such a special night. Most priests really celebrate that up, because yeah. um, the institution of the Eucharist and the priesthood together that night. So Yeah. 
I do think too, I mean, even just kind of touching on the church's teaching on this, even if, if it, sometimes if, if this is something maybe you haven't heard in a long time or is a little bit newer to maybe your, your Catholic years a little bit, it is good to, it's good to dive into the documents of the church here. And, and it's also good, as probably Mark mentioned, to go read John chapter 6. I mean, again, like you, you see Christ presenting this teaching to, to the people. John In John's gospel, this is a little more theological than we need to get to, John, John's gospel does not contain parables. He's not, he's not a parable writer. He is, he, he doesn't, this is not how he, how he writes for, for this, for his gospel. Um, but so when, when Jesus is speaking to the people about the need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, you don't see Christ back down from that teaching. The people say, this is hard. He doesn't go, ah, well, it's kind of like this. He just keeps on repeating it <laughs> to mm-hmm. say like, this is he the, doubles down. He doubles down. He keeps going through. And then you see in the very early church, um, I was reading a little bit of Justin Martyr recently for a course I'm taking and, and there in Justin Martyr, who's kind of one of the first apologists, really not one of the first, but a very early apologist of the church. He had to kind of defend the teaching. We have a record teaching. of. Yeah, yeah we, had, we have a record of his writing. He he had to write to, I think it was like the Roman, em- the emperor, to defend what the Christians were doing behind closed doors because they were accused of being cannibals because they were talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so they and so they, there is this very real, tangible, this is not just a symbol. So John Paul immediately kind of jumps into that in, uh, from the very beginning. He says that this is, that th- this is what we teach on on the Eucharist, and ever since the time of Pentecost, the church continually is doing this, is continually offering, representing the Paschal mystery of Christ, his, his suffering, death, his passion, and, and, and his resurrection and ascension. That's what is happening at the Eucharist. We're entering into that time. It's not just the, the, just the today thing, but we're marching along, being fed and nourished by the Eucharist until his second coming again. And so that's kind of what we're doing in, as, we, as we participate in the Eucharist. So, and the other thing I want to touch on here really quick before we jump into um, some of your notes here is that in paragraph five, he, he touches on um, this this need for the church to kind of have a rekindled amazement for the Eucharist, which, I mean, again, is just prophetic for, for our time we're in right now. And he's, what he says is this amazement should always fill the church assembled for the celebration of the Eucharist. And the amazement he's talking about here is that that we get to participate in Christ's Paschal mystery here and now, that we are, because of the Eucharist, we get to participate here and now. And he says then, um, but it is a special way it should be, it should fill the ministry of the Eucharist, for it is he who by the authority given him in the sacrament of priestly ordination affects the consecration. It is he who says with the power coming to him from Christ in the upper room, this is my body which will be given up for you. The priest says these words, or rather he puts his voice at the disposal of the one who spoke these words in the upper room and who desires that they should be repeated in every generation by all those who in the church ministerially share in his priesthood. I mean, what a beautiful reflection, but again, touching on a point you just made, no priests, no Eucharist. And like, it, it really is as simple and as, as not as complicated as that. You don't have priests, you don't have the Eucharist. And so mm-hmm. these two, again, this kind of ecology of gifts happening here that, that because of the priests, yes, we're able to receive the Eucharist. So anyway, I don't, I don't, I don't want to take away from any notes you had of what you wanted, what you wanted to bring up. So moving on then maybe from, from that, and what are you, what are you, what are you yeah. talking about the guys with here? Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, so when we do the discussion, typically what I would do is usually what stood out to you. So different things. And that's what you've been right. talking about, things that have stood out to you. And then usually there's a question, you know, geared towards pastoral ministry. So recognizing this, what might you do to help with this? And then just kind of own personally so they would witness a little bit. So that's usually what the questions were or something like that. But, um, but I mean, I always would kind of make my own little notes. But there was one thing that came up. It was in the document. But it was actually written by 
uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch. And he, he defined the Eucharist as this, and I found this quite profound, that it's the medicine of immortality mm. and an antidote to death. Mm. So the medicine of immortality and an antidote to death. And I was just, you know, so he's quoting St. Ignatius of Antioch, one of the great church fathers. But, I mean, to me, there was just so much depth behind I mean, just beautiful to contemplate. But, you know, what's underlying? If he talks about this medicine and antidote. So the understanding is that we're sick. Mm. That, you know, we're not healed. We need healing. We're not in full health. Um, so we're in, a, we're in a position of need, of dependence, right? So this is, like I said, medicine. When you're medicine, you need medicine when you're sick. We need antidotes to prevent something. But of immortality and an antidote to death, like Jesus said, unless you eat and eat my flesh and drink my, you do not have life within me. That's right. where the immortality comes from. Jesus offers this to us. So we recognize, which is why this has been kind of a big thing, right? Recently, that we're in a good position, that we're in a good state to receive our Lord. And we're always going to in need of it because we're sinners. But um, you know that we don't have a mortal sin on our souls. That we're not doing anything contrary to what you know egregiously to what the church teaches. So. We are within communion of it. So that's why it's so important to recognize that we're in a good state to receive. But if we're able to do that, we receive the Eucharist to as a pledge of eternal life. Yeah. That we, we do this on earth as a foretaste of heaven. Um, immortality means that we live forever. And then, of course, antidote to death to prevent us from going to hell. I mean, it's just that's right. a reality. Um, you know, And but Jesus gives us here. Like all the, all the gifts are there. Everything is extended to us. I mean, it's all there for us to receive if we choose, of course, because he loves us. He gives us that opportunity. But I was just really struck by those words and just to what that what that really means. Um, so, yeah, no, I think even along those lines, um, the, the, the stress of community um, or it's not, uh, the stress of communion that's that's in this text is is beautiful and profound because John Paul lays out so beautifully how. The Eucharist gives us a a, a a taste of the communion that's experienced first and foremost in the Trinity. So, if, so we talk about the Trinity, we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one, it's it's one God, three persons, and there is this there that is community, that is communion, that is the image of communion is is the Trinity. Because of the gift of the Eucharist, we're we're drawn up into that life. We're drawn up into the life of the Trinity, where we experience true communion. From that communion that we experience in the Trinity, then then it, it, it goes outward to then experience communion in our, in our own lives. And so he kind of talks about how in, in the celebration of the Eucharist, we're, we're drawn up in the life of the Trinity. We're also drawn up then thus in the life of heaven, the, the, the communion of saints, which we've talked about a couple times on, on this podcast, a whole, whole episode on the saints. But we're then drawn up into this communion of heaven, and we're, we're, we're drawn up to that. So what the Eucharist is doing first and foremost is it's it's drawing us up into God's own life and a sharing in that life and pointing us toward our proper end, which I think he even mentioned a couple times in the document that the Eucharist points us toward our proper end. It points us toward heaven and being in communion with the with the Lord Jesus perfectly in heaven. But then it also then has this kind of like secondary effect where because we're drawn up into perfect communion with the Lord and in and in those in heaven, we're then, or not perfect communion, but we're drawn up in, into communion as perfectly as we can now on earth until we get to heaven. We're also drawn more deeply into communion with one another. And that that communion then says that I am in communion with all of you. I am in this, I am in this sharing of unity with with all of you. And because of that, we're able to experience a, a 
almost a, a more human experience of life because we're, we're seeing how how the Lord wants to work in and through our lives and how he wants to shape the entire world in his own image. And so the communion that we experience with the Lord in the Eucharist is then an expression of our communion with one another. And this is why the church's teaching is that if you're not in communion with the Lord because of your sin, you shouldn't receive the Eucharist because you're expressing a reality that's not there. Mm -hmm. You're saying, yes, I'm in communion with you, when in reality, you're not. Mm -hmm. And I think we all understand this to a certain degree, um, even kind of more colloquially. I mean, like if there's a family member that you're not in communion with, but you go out to a family reunion, you kind of pretend like you're in communion with them, but like everyone there, you know you're not in communion. Like there's just a, there's a, there's a falseness to it. And it, it actually can harm the relationship from that point. And so the church tells us that if you're, if you're not in communion with the Lord because your soul, because you've committed mortal sin, you shouldn't receive the Eucharist. And it's not because you're excluded from the exclusive club. It's mm-hmm. because you're expressing a reality that's just not there. But we can take comfort in the fact that the Lord desires communion with us. He wants that communion. So if we, in the very beginning of, of Holy Mass, when the priest says, let's call to mind our sins and prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries, you're supposed to think, Am I in communion with the Lord and mm-hmm. therefore his church and all people here? And then you, you express your sorrow for your, for your sinfulness. And if it's venial, you kind of have that. It's kind of like that you, you get that kind of washed away in those moments. But it, but ultimately, you're, you want to make sure you're expressing a communion that is actually present. And if it's not actually present, then the Lord Jesus calls you to reflect upon that and then have the humility to then go to him in the confessional. Like it's like, like that you're, you're going to receive the Lord, mm-hmm. not, in, not in the Eucharist, which is like, as John Paul says, the gift par excellence, but you're also able to then go receive the Lord Jesus in the confessional where he hears your sins, he receives those sins, and he forgives you for those sins. And then he says, now come be in communion again. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's anyway. No, it's just an important reality to point out because I think people can kind of, if we say somebody shouldn't, it's like, oh, because we're being exclusive, you know, exclusionary and we're, right. we're in all this stuff. It's like, it's not welcoming all stuff. Like, no, we do it for the sake of their own soul, but the means to come back is there. It's oh, not right, like, yeah. you're, you're like, you're it's, done. That's it. It's not a luck. secret. You know, yeah. No, it's just like, <laughs> It's like, it's meant to like, okay, you recognize, you have to recognize that you're in this state, but then to go to the Lord, to receive the forgiveness, to put back into his graces, to bring right. back into communion. Like, so people want to focus oftentimes on the exclusionary part of it, but it's one, it's for their own good. And two, there is a remedy and it's rather, yeah. it's a rather simple, straightforward remedy. It is is to experience the Lord first in his mercy and forgiveness and to be able to receive him in the fullness of his love. And that's what it is, to be able to receive that love. And, you know, with the document, too, it just, you know, John Paul II maybe began this. I mean, he certainly does it. It may have happened before him. But oftentimes towards the end of the document, they, they focus on Our Lady as, mm. as a beautiful model, as a beautiful example of all this. And I was really struck by one of them. Um, it was in paragraph 56 that um, it said there's this, um, I'm sorry, it's 55, this analogy between Mary's fiat, her mm. saying, let it be done to me according to thy word. And the believers, amen, as he comes forward to receive the Lord. There's mm. this, because behind that oh, fiat, it says, um, um, you know, let it be done. Like, I believe, I trust, this is it, you know, and this will happen. And as we receive our, we, we say amen. Not, <laughs> that brings up a whole bunch of, I <laughs> sometimes, sometimes as a priest, I hear a few different things. Um, Some different formulae. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they're not just say amen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just say amen. People. I mean, they're not like nefarious or anything, no, but it's right. just like I've heard like you know, the body of Christ. It is. It, it, yeah, 
It, it is like that's that's <laughs> like inherent, you know. Yes, Although say you are um, I believe sometimes mm-hmm. I hear that it's like good, but like that's what amen means. It yeah, means right, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, I don't particularly like hearing uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but that sometimes happens. Thank you. But um, but behind that, I, I hope that we recognize that 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 there really is sort of like even though you know we don't say I believe, but Amen. That's that's what it means. It means I believe. So mm-hmm. when you say the body of Christ, that's truly what you're saying. I, I I believe this to be true, and I trust in you. Mirroring what our blessed mother said after this mission was given to her. So to me, like I said, there's a whole chapter on the connection between Mary and the Eucharist. But that's what really stood out to me. Maybe it's because it's something we do every single time. You know, right? Uh, and it's hopefully something to recount the next time that you come to Mass and you come forward to receive the Lord. Is that you say that amen, which we've said hundreds, if not thousands of times, but really you connect into Our Lady like, yeah, I believe. Right. I believe this This is true. This is the reality. This is Jesus. And that's the thing. I mean, I feel like uh, one of our priests mentioned this. We had a, a, a priest retreat focusing on the Eucharist, which was beautiful. But you talked about, like, I feel like we spend so much time you know, catechizing, explaining what the Eucharist is. It's, okay, what is it? it it's, it's Jesus' body, but it's him, you know, true. Right, but then there's that shift that has to happen between knowing what it is and loving the Eucharist. Mm. You know, and I'm like that's so true because I feel like I'm always like, no, it's not just a sign, it's not just a symbol. It's really Him. It's His substance. It's His person. All like I, I do that, but like, but then to help the faithful to make that shift, which is why adoration is so important <clears throat> to, to deepen that belief and and to love the Eucharist, yeah. to truly love, not some wafer, not some host, but but truly Him. Yeah. Um. That's a big shift. But if if that's what we're able to accomplish over these next three years, the Eucharistic revival, man, like, can you imagine? Yep. You know, um, that changes hearts, that changes families, that changes relationships, that changes communities. It does. Um, that's what we're praying for. Yep. It is a, even you saying, uh, um, you know, the, the, the connection between knowing and loving. You know, I mean, there's, a, again, a professor of mine at the AI um, who I'd love to interview sometime. He'd be, he'd be great. He's brilliant. Um he uh he was talking about the Eucharistic revival. I had him in my last semester of school, and he was saying we we can't just keep kind of pounding on the lectern or on the ambo, saying it's really him, it's really him, it's really him. He said because at some point we have to be able to we we have to make sure that people not only know it's him, but that as they receive him, that they're that they're asking for the grace to deeply to 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 know him more deeply, to love him more deeply, like in like like this relationship of as I receive the Lord, as he comes close to me, that you can ask him to give you the grace to believe in him more, <laughs> that he can give you these things. And like the Eucharist is actually doing something in my heart and in my life. And um, if we just think it's a, well, I show up to mass on Sunday so I can get my Eucharist. We're already in the wrong state of, of believing here. It's like this transactional thing. I come here, you give me this, I go home as opposed to I'm here to, 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 worship the Lord because I know of his great gift he's given to me of life, of my family, of the church, of all things he's given me. I'm here to worship the Lord because it's right and just to give him that praise. And in doing so, he he pours himself continually out on me in his grace and his love and mercy. And there's this constant gift of himself to me and that I want to be able to receive that. I want to be in a place where I can truly receive the gift he's giving to me. And the Eucharist being the gift par excellence is there is there is grace upon grace upon grace poured out into our lives. It is 
actually doing something. And I think that's kind of the thing that we need to help lead people into that mystery. We need to help them understand more deeply that the Eucharist really is doing something in and through your heart. And if you're in a state of grace and you're receiving that well, is doing good things. And we, and we want to help you see that. Um, and so I think there's a lot of work to be done. We could have done a, we could have done probably a whole series <laughs> on this document so long that we really even <laughs> scraped the surface of it. Maybe we'll do another follow up in, in the future sometime on it. Um, but I, I really encourage your listeners to go to read this document to kind of take your time with it, soak in the the wisdom, the beauty of John Paul's writing on the Eucharist, and allow it to um, uh, allow the Lord to speak to you through this document and then to say to the Lord, I, I want to know you more deeply. I want you to give me the grace that you know my heart needs in order to receive you more. Like he expands our hearts to receive him more. And it's all a gift. It's not, it's not a work on our part. It is a, it is a almost a complete submission and docility to receiving from him. And it's a beautiful thing. So any, any closing thoughts on the Eucharist or on the document, Father Mark? Nope. Nothing on the document. I just, no. I just, um, I just uh, it's something I just always hope to remember whenever I celebrate Mass. I just I love to have a little silence before just to recognize what's about to happen, what's about to take place. Mm. Um, I might have mentioned this before, but I, I kind of hope one day when uh, God willing be given a parish, um, I love just to put up a big sign. This is in the, the sacristy at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Just yeah. one word, silencium. <laughs> you don't have to know Latin to find out what that means. <laughs> but just sort of like that, that's whole like, you know, just, it's just a reminder from my own thought. And, you know, recognizing this gift, recognizing this profound reality, the more and more just how we how I prepare, but hopefully how the faithful prepare as well to receive this. Like, um, it's not something like anti-community just to have that silence and that quiet, but just it, it's, you know, the proper, I think, disposition before this profound reality that what we're about to witness, that God so loved us, that we hear him in the scriptures, and then he's made present substantially in the Eucharist. So, um like I said, I celebrate one already, got one more to go. I just, I'm like, Lord, help me to recognize this and to celebrate it worthily and well. Beautiful. Beautiful. Would you mind closing in prayer and giving us a blessing, Father? Not at all. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good and gracious God, you are the giver of all good gifts. Everything that we receive comes from you and we receive with great gratitude. We are grateful for the gift of our life, the gift of our friends, our family, the gift of our faith, the gift of your Son, Jesus, who came among us and remains with us always, in particular, through the gift of the Eucharist. We ask that you expand our hearts to receive the love that is the Eucharist deep within, that we may know all that you wish to give to us, that we fall deeply in love with this great gift, and that it transforms all of our lives, everyone that we meet. We ask that you help us to remain always in your grace, to receive it worthily and well, that we may grow in holiness all the way to heaven. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, dear listeners. I re- really encourage you guys to go read this document. I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes so you guys can just click on that and go enjoy your reading of John Paul II. But as you worship and as you receive the Eucharist, may you always be keeping the end in mind. <laughs>